You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Jeff Pfeffer, who is a professor at Stanford Graduate School of Business and is also the author of many books. His most recent book is one called Seven Rules of Power, Surprising But True Advice on How to Get Things Done and Advance Your Career. Uh, Of course, other books include Dying for a Paycheck, Leadership BS. You've got uh, some old co-authored books with your colleague Bob Sutton, The Knowing, Doing Gap, and Hard Facts, Dangerous Half-Truths and Total Nonsense. And of course, the classic, which I think is I mean, that one is really a classic, and I think that a lot of the recent work is just drawing out a lot of the conclusions and insights that were in that seminal book. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. I should also mention that you have one of the most, if not maybe the most popular class at at Stanford, which is called Paths to Power, which is, I think, available online. Actually, it's not open to the public. I guess it's through the LEAD program, so it's more accessible than it used to be. But look, Jeff, I mean, for years, you were interested in this kind of knowing doing gap, right? Why is it that so many managers kind of know, right, what makes for good management, but they have a difficult time uh, implementing it? And I think this more recent work is it digs a little deeper because it's really about what managers don't know. And it's what they don't know that seems to be getting in the way of their success. And the reason why they don't know it is kind of the fault of management training. It's kind of a failure of the leadership industry. So you point out that there's this massive leadership industry. It's super lucrative. And yet it is not built on really evidence. It's not built on objective truth. It's not based on social science. It's really more of a feel-good exercise at least that's what the consumers of it get out of it. And then it's kind of more of a, a preaching exercise, which is what the instructors kind of get out of it. So it's this win-win for the instructors who like to preach and the pupils who like to be inspired. But at the end of the day, it's not just ineffective, but it's harmful to the success of these leaders. And as a result, we have some of the worst leadership out there. And I think paradoxically, what you're saying is to be a successful leader, you have to embrace the tools that make for a successful leader. And, and of course, your critics would say that this is kind of a dark and dim and pessimistic view of organizations. But the result of ignoring it is that we leave the organizations to the people who naturally understand this or the people we might not want to be running our organizations. Is that a fair summary? I think that's a fantastic summary. I think it does a fantastic job of tying together two pieces of my writing and research, which aren't aren't normally tied together. And one is the work with Bob Sutton on the book, which was, I think, horribly titled Hard Facts, Dangerous Half-Truths, and Total Nonsense. The subtitle, of course, is is what the book should have been titled, Profiting from Evidence-Based Management. Bob and I were and continue to be committed to trying to have leaders, managers of all levels, 
base their decisions on the best evidence, understanding that evidence as it would in medicine evolves over time. But as opposed to casual benchmarking or making stuff up or doing what they read one in some article at Harvard Business Review, to really try to gauge and to craft their actions on the basis of social science and the basis of the best evidence. And then that I think, so that is a general theme that I've pursued for a long time. I think it is what everybody and academia does. I mean, we are all engaged, you and all your colleagues at Berkeley and me and my colleagues at Stanford and colleagues all around the world are engaged in an effort to both learn what is true, what, how to understand behavior at the organizational level, at the individual level, and then transmit that knowledge to people in a way that they will find useful. I think that's a piece of it. And then this integrates with a particular domain in which evidence seems to be mostly missing, which is the leadership literature, in which, as you, I think, again, extremely nicely described it, it's fundamentally lay preaching. It's opposed to talking about how behavior actually works and what actually makes people successful and how people become senior leaders or whatever. This is a story of how people want the world to be without almost any connection to how the world actually is. So I think those two things integrate in exactly how you describe them. Well, I like this analogy with medicine, right? Because, I mean, evidence-based medicine, it took a while for that to become the norm. And, and we could argue that there's still plenty of medicine out there which is not evidence-based. But I think as a doctor, if, if, if you kind of continue to engage in practices that result in kind of inferior outcomes, then now there's going to be some checks on that. So I guess the question is, why haven't there been kind of checks on this, right? I mean, you talk about how people get sent off into the business world and they usually find themselves disillusioned, even when they come out of kind of the top business school. So, you know, we here at Berkeley, we have these defining principles and we teach people to question the status quo and so forth. And I like to say that we're basically sending people on a suicide mission, <laughs> you know, like, you know, this, this would work great if the organizations were designed to be kind of receptive to people like this, but you know, most of them aren't and, and most of them never will be right. So why is it that we haven't had that kind of feedback loop back into the, the educational process that you might see, say, in medicine? Well, you know, I'm not exactly sure I have a good answer to that. I think I have some partial answers. So at Stanford, we talk about values-based leadership. And, you know, on the surface, you would say, who could be opposed to values-based leadership? Then you ought to lead with values, you ought to lead with integrity, you ought to lead with authenticity, all these things. But I think we have failed to ask the question, I mean, if you're going to have values-based leadership, the next thing you need to ask is, how are you going to get the power and influence to actually implement those values? And you, I think, use the lovely phrase, which is sending people out on a suicide mission. I mean, if I go out with a set of values, but have no skill at actually understanding where the opposition will come from, how to deal with that opposition, how to influence other people to also agree with my values, then I'm just spitting into the wind. And I think there has been too much emphasis in business education on values with an insufficient emphasis on how you are going to influence others to actually adhere to those values. And you see this 
In the ESG movement, you see a lot of organizations engaged in greenwashing with respect to the environmental movement. You see a lot of virtue signaling. In other words, you see a lot of talk that is basically disconnected from organizational action, which is, of course, one of the issues that Bob and I pointed out in the knowing-doing gap. Well, I think at one point in, in your book, you say that people who you interact with accuse you of trying to get people to behave you know, un unnaturally, right? And that, you know, it doesn't come naturally for people to behave in political or kind of Machiavellian ways. But I mean, that doesn't seem right to me. I mean, it, it's certainly the more you study kind of primate behavior, right? Or the behavior of folks in small scale societies or, you know, just large organizations. I mean, it does seem kind of awfully, awfully natural. And as you say, right, I mean, you wouldn't build a rocket without understanding the laws of physics. So you know, why would you build a career without understanding the laws of power? And I think you're making this point that, you know, these are kind of laws, right? You know, you have to understand human beings. You have to understand human nature. You have to understand human sociability. And these are like deeply, deeply rooted. And, and you see these principles in all kinds of organizations, even ones that are kind of endowed with some kind of beneficent mission. Certainly universities are, we are meant to be public serving, but universities are incredibly political. I mean, I, I went through the, the various stages of learning that you described when it dawned on me that, that universities were not this place that just kind of cherished the pursuit of truth, right? Well, universities are actually commercial institutions, as I'm sure you figured out. Certainly that's true for Stanford, which is a very commercial institution. So I, I tell people all the time, if you want to understand Stanford, but don't think of it as university, think of it as Google with higher profit margins, and you'll be able to understand exactly how we make decisions. I mean, you know, we had a provost, she's still the provost, who tried to do away with Stanford University Press because it didn't make very much money, even though in a context of a multi-billion dollar budget, it's a, you know, its losses were rounding error. It tried to get rid of, which was another stupid thing we did, which then we backtracked on this also, 11 the so varsity sports that it produced all kinds of Olympic athletes and all kinds of gold medals because of, they weren't money makers like football and basketball. And again, the amount of money involved was was trivial. And but you uh, you can understand this only if you understand Stanford is what it is. This is a profit makes maximizing organization that is basically lost a lot of the original academic values that it once had. Now, when you when you go through these seven laws of power, the first one is get out of your own way. And it made me think of design thinking in a sense, right? Because design thinking always starts with observation, suspension of judgment, an awareness of the frames and the biases that we bring to the table, right? An awareness of how our, our normativity clouds our objective capacity to interpret the facts. So maybe could you dig a little bit into this? Because this is, this is really, this seems to be, without this first step, then almost nothing, you're not going to be receptive to anything else. I think that's correct. And that's why listed as rule one. And getting out of your own way really involves many things. One of the things it involves is not showing up with a set of scripts that, that, that limit your power. So some people will say, well, I can't do this because I'm a 
from a group that's an underrepresented minority, or I can't do this because I'm a woman, or I can't do this because I'm not a native born from whatever country I'm living in. And so therefore, you come in with a set of beliefs about ways in which you are disadvantaged. And the, those beliefs about how you are disadvantaged may in fact be a accurate, but if you carry them with you into the situation, you're going to start by inhibiting what you're able and willing to do, which is, I think, never a good thing. And you're going to start with a description of yourself that will be contagious to others and that limits, again, that. I think a second way in which people limit themselves and get in their own way is they say, well, you know, I need to be liked. You know, and my friend Gary Lovin, who used to run Caesars and then was a senior executive at and has this lovely saying, you want to be like a dog. Your job as a senior leader is not to win a popularity contest. Your job in leadership is to get stuff done, to launch products, to launch services, you know, to build a customer-focused organization, to recruit people, to do all the things that are essence essential to running your organization. And you have, you know... I remember serving on a dean search committee once, and the prior dean was a nice guy. And people said, well, you know, he, but, uh, you know, the school was dead in the water. And I said, well, the good news about being dead in the water is that no one could complain about the direction. But that as soon as you start the boat, someone will say, no, that's not what we should do. And so if you look at strong leaders, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, almost any political leader or business leader, they are going to do things that not everybody is going to like. Because business involves what economics talks about, trade-offs. And, you know, when you make trade-offs, not everybody is going to make the trade-offs the same way that the leader would make them. And everybody is not going to agree with how those trade-offs have, have, have been made. And so your, your job as a leader is to get stuff done, not to, you know, make everybody happy. And so that's another way, I think, in which we get in our own way. And so we need to get out of our own way if we're going to be decisive enough to accomplish things. Now, look, part of what you're talking about is how to be a good leader, but, you know, your course is called Paths to Power. So it's really about how do you kind of become that leader? So most of the people who are coming out of business school, unless they become founders, even when they're founders, they have to kind of bow and scrape before their investors, right? That's, so, that's absolutely know, correct. I mean, as you know, many founders are thrown out of their organization. I mean, my God, Steve Jobs was at one point thrown out of Apple. And the percentage of founders, even of successful companies, or maybe even particularly of successful companies who get thrown out of their organizations is quite high. Right. So is there a difference between kind of the things that you need to do to get on top and then kind of the things that, that you need to do to be, you know, effective when you are on top? Or is there a kind of a single set of rules and, and principles, right? I mean, you talk a bit about how these servant leaders can talk about humility and, and so forth. But I think you also make the point that that's easy to do when, when you're, you know, kind of on top of the heap. Getting there, you have to maybe take, be a little less humble, right? If you are constantly downgrading your accomplishments and, and being very reluctant to claim credit for your own work or much less other people's work, then, you know, you might not ever get to that position, right? I think that's right. And also, you know, I think one of the problems with the leadership industry and one of the problems with things like at Stanford, where we have the view from the top series, you know, once a leader has a lot of power, they can then construct through their PR people and through ever the biographies or autobiographies that they write, they construct a narrative of how they manage and how they got to where they are, which often bears almost no resemblance to what actually happened. And so I think 
skeptical. People are, on, are insufficiently skeptical, which is ironic to me. I mean, we live in a world of Google. We live in a world of social media. We live in a world where when people tell stories, you can re relatively quickly ascertain whether or not those stories have any basis in truth. But because we want to believe in these fairy tales, people do not do sufficient due diligence. Well, I, I want to ask you to dig into this concept of, you know, authentic leadership and, and uh, kind of vulnerable leadership, because this is very, very popular concept. It's one that is baked into leadership training. You're, of course, very, very skeptical of this. What is the explanation for the, the popularity of it? And is there something that we can learn from these discussions around vulnerability and authenticity? So first of all, I recommend to everybody Adam Grant's New York Times column from a number of years ago, which is entitled something to the effect of, unless you're Oprah, be yourself as terrible advice, which I think is exactly right. I also recommend Herminia Barra, who's at London Business School, has a fabulous TED Talk on this, and she also has an HBR article on this, and she points out you know, I think in her HBR article, it opens with an example of a woman, but it need not be a woman. It could be, a, it could have been any gender. In this particular case, it's a woman who comes in to, gets appointed to a senior leadership role. And the first thing she says to the her team is that, you know, I'm not certain about what I'm doing. And she admits that she's not clear about her own skills and whatever. And basically the people lose faith and confidence in her. The last thing you want to hear from your boss is that they don't know what the hell they're doing. The last thing you want to hear from your doctor is that he's uncertain or she is, even if they are. So, you know, Cameron Anderson at UC Berkeley has done a lot of research that demonstrates the relationship, the connection between confidence and competence. To the extent that you show up in a confident fashion, people believe you're more competent. And because they believe you're more competent, they're more likely to follow you. So that's, I think, one issue about authenticity. Nobody wants to hear about your problems or your weaknesses. And my friend, Adam Grant, will point out that, again, that, that people want to believe that they're going to be successful. Don Quixote is a lovely uh, figure in literature, but to say that your um, efforts are quixotic is not considered to be a compliment. People will follow people that they think are going to win. So you have to show up with power and strength. And admitting weaknesses and vulnerability is not necessarily a good thing to do. And where people have gotten, people are sloppy. So people confuse being authentic, and close and vulnerable with your spouse, with your family, with your close personal friends, with being authentic and vulnerable with work people who, by the way, are often competitors of yours for promotion and a hierarchical organization. So I think people use, people take stuff that may work in one situation and just automatically think it will work equally well in another situation. And it won't. There's just been research out, which I published in, in Sight in Seven Rules of Power, that talks about the distinction between authenticity in different interpersonal contexts. That authenticity with respect to friends and family is very different than authenticity in a work environment. So people just are not sufficiently thoughtful about whether or not this stuff generalizes from one place to another. Well, you also point out research that says that reciprocity is viewed differently in personal relationships and in, in work relationships. And this I found most surprising because, you know, we, we tend to think that tit for tat and kind of the, uh, the network of favors and 
clientage and all that kind of stuff is one tool that you use to kind of ascend the ladder. And I think that you present a much more short, nasty, and, and brutish kind of world where there might be reciprocity, but the minute the shadow of the future kind of disappears, then all that reciprocity goes out the window. Well, not all of it, but a lot of it. I think that is exactly right. You know, Peter Bellman and I did this paper in which we demonstrated, and, and if you think about it for a minute, of course, it makes complete sense, that in interpersonal relationships, the norm of reciprocity is quite strong. But when you get into an organization, you adopt what we call a more calculative mindset in which you are thinking not just, you know, did Gregory do something for me so I need to repay it, but is Gregory going to be part of my life in the future? What is Gregory going to be able to do for me in the future? And if he is not going to be in a position of power, or maybe he's not even going to be in the organization in the future, then as I calculate whether or not I need to repay and what I need to do for him, it's much more calculative and less this automatic normative basis for interpersonal behavior. And that shouldn't surprise anybody. I mean, organizations are all about calculation. Who do I need to get on my side? Who can be useful to me in the future? Not who has been useful in the past, but, you know, who is going to be most useful to me in the future as I move forward and as I need to get different things done. So this calculative mindset definitely weakens the norm of reciprocity. Yeah, I had a podcast on friendship and friendship was defined as sort of a, a relationship where that calculation is suspended or, or dampened, where, you know, you're not thinking what's in it for me, right? Going forward, that's sort of the, the definition of it. But aren't we seeing dissolution of the boundaries between work and personal life, right? I mean, it used to be very clear, right? You stop work at five o'clock, you go home and then you have your family and so forth. But now, right, people expect to find their friends at work. We built out these campuses, at least prior to the pandemic, where the Facebook campus is supposed to look like a college campus. You're supposed to be there and you're supposed to go for drinks with your coworkers and you're supposed to bring your dog to work. And people are kind of deriving meaning from work in the same way that they used to derive meaning from their church or their neighborhood. And so does this kind of blurring of, of the boundary confuse people? Is it something that is almost impossible to make sense of because, you know, you've got this jockeying for power in one domain that's kind of dampened in this other domain? I think people are well served to have friends outside of work, not just in work. You, they certainly are spending too much damn time in work which has all kinds of ill consequences, as we know, from dying for a paycheck. But there's research that shows when people, in fact, mix the instrumental strategic elements of work with friendship, that, uh, you know, that, that it causes issues, that they often feel dirty when they ask their friends for help. But in fact, work, the essence of organizations is interdependence. And so if we are interdependent, if Gregory and I are interdependent, I need to learn from him, I need to get you to do stuff that's going to be useful to me. And therefore, blurring the friendship with these more strategic interactions, which are necessary in order to get things done, oftentimes makes people uncomfortable. And therefore, they either underask their work friends for help or they feel dirty when they do it and, and so on and so forth. So it's, so it is kind of an, an interesting thing. And as you already pointed out as a premise of your question, which is completely correct, 
In a friendship situation, if you and I are friends and we work in different organizations and probably even in different industries, there is a pure friendship relationship. But as soon as we work for the same place, because organizations are hierarchical, we are both competing. So it's a very mixed motive situation and how to sort out those mixed motives. You know, I'm a friend, we're helping each other. We're socializing, we're drinking together, we're hanging out together, but we are also at some level competing for promotions. We may be competing for resources. You may have one product that you're trying to launch. I may have a different product that I'm trying to launch. We're competing for sales time. We're competing for marketing resources. We're competing for engineering resources. So we are in a very, very mixed motive situation. And so sorting that out is, I think, problematic. Yeah, you mentioned that one of the obstacles to becoming an effective leader is this sense of, I don't know, dirtiness when one is engaged in, in networking. And, and you, of course, networking is one of the most important activities for advancing your career. Um, you also say that you have to be very strategic about how you manage your time, right? So you know, there are a lot of people that think that they can become these individual contributors. And I, I find that like a training in, in economics might actually be harmful in this regard because we as economists oftentimes teach our students that if you b build a better mousetrap, somebody will beat a path to your door, right? Meaning that if you are a talented contributor, right, your boss will recognize this and they will reward you. <laughs> and if you just sit there and do your job and you're good at it, then, you know, you'll, you'll magically kind of ascend through the ranks. And I think this is such a harmful myth. Right. And so if you don't allocate, if you don't actually budget, if you don't set aside time for networking and for brand building and for doing the political stuff, right, then your career will, will stagnate. So how does one strategically organize one's time to make sure that you're, I mean, because if you're a producer and you know that every minute that you are away from actually kind of quote, contributing to the organization is you feel that and you feel like you're, you're betraying your, your occupation in some way by, quote, wasting your time on political stuff. Well, you know, I mean, if you do good work and nobody knows about it, then, you know, it's, it's not going to do any good. It's kind of like a, tr a tree falling in the forest. Nobody hears the sound. So it is obviously necessary, you know, to perform at a high level, but people need to know about that performance. You need to, you. If, if I were talking about a business, I would say, you know, you need to build your product and the product should be better rather than worse. But on the other hand, you also need to market that product. You need to brand that product. It needs to not only be effective, people need to b believe it's effective. I mean, my God, Apple is as much a marketing company as it is a product design and technology company. And that's true, I think, for many organizations. So yes, you need rule four is to, is to build a strong personal brand. Rule five of seven rules of power is to network relentlessly. First of all, if you think about what does a manager do? What does a leader do? A leader gets things done through other people. That's kind of an often definition of what management is. If you're going to get things done through other people, you need to need, know those people. You need to have connections to them. You can't get things done through other people by, you know, magically waving some wand or pixie dust or something. You need to have relationships with people if you are going to have them contribute to what needs to happen. And certainly you need to build a strong brand because people will join you 
if they believe you're going to be successful and if they know who you are. I mean, who's going to work for Gregory LeBlanc if nobody knows who the hell you are? I think these things are not only are they supported by research, but they're supported by simple common sense. Right. And I think you highlight this Matthew effect, right, which is and again, I think oftentimes if we have a little bit of economics training, we tend to think in terms of equilibration, right? We tend to think in terms of negative feedback. And so, you know, as you start going up the ladder, there's going to be more and more resistance. And as you start kind of have an adverse event, well, that that's going to also rebound at some point. But I think you, you talk about the kind of positive feedback loops associated with the acquisition or loss of power. And so if you're trying to jumpstart this, right, in other words, the more power you have, the more power you're likely to be given. One way to jumpstart this is fake it till you make it, right? I mean, that was gets back to our, our confidence story. So, you know, why is, is this positive feedback loop means that small moves can actually have big consequences if you strategically make them? That is absolutely correct. Well, the idea of the self-fulfilling prophecy is an idea in the self social sciences that go back to the goes back to the 1940s and is manifest in a thousand different phenomena ranging from runs on banks to the idea that if everybody you know if everybody believes your enterprise is going to be successful the best talent will want to work with you the best investors will want to invest in you the customers will want to buy your product and in fact it will be you will become successful so the effect of expectations the effect of all these positive feedback loops. Most organizations, what you described at the beginning is this homeostatic process, which is like a thermostat. You get too high, we'll pull you back down. You get too low, we'll bring you back up. The temperature is going to be equilibrated. But in fact, most organizational processes are variance amplifying rather than variance dampening. That people want to be associated with success. So the more successful you look, the more successful you become because everybody wants to work with you. And if you are able to hire the best talent, you obviously have a huge advantage. And that's only one way in which this happens. And we, you know, another manifestation is uh, confirmation bias. We see what we expect to see. So if I believe Gregory LeBlanc has got the world's best podcast, I will see your podcast. And it will, of course, everybody is going to evaluate it differently. But to the extent you have a strong brand and a strong reputation, people will evaluate the same behavior more positively than if they think you're not as good as you are. And, you know, Barry Stahl, your colleague, who's now retired, years and years ago, did this fabulous study, and he asked the following question. You know, we got measures of actual National Basketball Player Association skill from how they play in the games. And the question was, how does draft order, net of skill, affect their playing time? And he found that if you were drafted higher up, in other words, people had higher beliefs about your ability, that controlling for your actual ability, you had more playing time. I mean, so even in sports, where there are ob in better than there is often in business, objective measures of ability, expectations have an effect. Now, you also talk about kind of rule breaking. This feeds into a, a later discussion about how powerful people can get away with stuff. There's two elements to this, right? One of which is the rule breaking itself can help you to acquire power, but then having the power, people interpret the rule breaking differently, right? They tend to kind of overlook it for a number of reasons. There's this halo effect, right? There's this cognitive dissociation. Could you talk a little bit about that, right? Because I do, I do want to kind of understand 
ultimately why it is that we do have this persistence of toxic leadership in so many environments. Well, you've asked two questions at once. I'll try to answer them both. Uh, yeah. Rule two <laughs> of the seven rules of power is in fact, break the rules. And that's based upon Malcolm Gladwell with this wonderful New York article, how David beats Goliath. David beats Goliath by looking at Goliath and saying, if I try to fight Goliath on Goliath's terms, I'll put on all this armor, pick up this heavy sword, I'm going to be slaughtered. And so therefore he has to engage in what is called, I think the technical term is asymmetric warfare. I'm going to take my particular skill, which happens to be as a shepherd using a slingshot. And I'm, I'm going to fight Goliath using my skills and my, on my terms, not on Goliath's terms. And that's how David beats Goliath. And Malcolm Gladwell in this lovely article talks about that as a general phenomena. Uh, he cites a book which looks at, it looks literally at wars and, and where you have so, can pretty well easily and objectively measure which side has the most armaments and which side has, you know, the most, most advanced technologies and whatever. And it turns out that when the weak plays by the rules that favor them and don't play by the strong rules, the rules that are promulgated by the strong, they win about three quarters of the time. You can see this actually play out in Ukraine where the Soviet Union has many more tanks, but the Ukrainians understand what to do to overcome this. And they're not going to, you know, play by the Soviet, by, by the Russian rules. So yes. So breaking the rules is important. I would say breaking the rules is important in social justice movements. So you had John Lewis, you had Martin Luther King, who said, we are not going to obey the rules. We're not going to sit in the back of the bus. We are not going to be excluded from, from lunch counters. We are not going to accept rules that say that African-Americans ought to be and are in inferior positions. We are not going to accept laws that say we can't intermarry or we can't go to the same schools, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, their story is an interesting story. The rules tend to favor the people who make the rules. And so therefore, if you are somebody who's favored by the rules, by all means, follow the rules. But if you are somebody an underrepresented minority, a woman or someone who is in a position that normally doesn't operate from advantage, why would you adhere to rules that disadvantage you and that basically write you in many respects out of the picture? So that's, I think, the, the story about rule breaking. And then I think you were alluding to rule seven, which is that once you have power and success, people will overlook what you did um, to get there, which is certainly true as well, because we have this cognitive consistency in which we want to say, we want to believe that the world is a just and fair place. So the people in power, people in authority deserve it. And we will therefore rationalize what they did to get it. The best example, of course, is Lindsey Graham with Donald Trump. Lindsey Graham begins as a not, never Trumper. And after Trump becomes president, you know, he try, Lindsey Graham firmly affixes his career to Donald. And, and this fascinates people in the New York Times and they do all these profiles. And one of the things that Lindsay says, he says, I want to be relevant. Trump is now the president. If I want to have any influence on this man who has a lot of formal positional power, I have to figure out a way to build a relationship with him, which is not saying the same bad things I once said about him. And you see this in companies. People become CEOs and the people who didn't like them suddenly find all kinds of new ways to like them. People become deans in business schools, and all of a sudden they have lots more friends than they used to have. Right. 
Well, you mentioned in the preface of your book that you were thinking of titling it something around, you know, Trump and and, and how he, he became successful. And I talked to your, your friend, uh, Rich Moran. He, he did write a book which had kind of Trump in, in the title. And, and perhaps that's why your book might sell more copies than, than his book. But, you know, what can we learn from this experience? I mean, on the one hand, and, and a lot of the leaders that you, you discuss, right, from Elizabeth Holmes to Travis Kalanick, I mean, they, they may have, at some point, you know, the story might not have ended well, but for a long period of time, they were able to be very effective. You know, when we look back at what Donald Trump was able to do, is every politician on the planet looking at that saying, okay, I, I think now here's a set of tools that we didn't think was available to us that we now have available? I mean, those tools have always been, been available, right? That is absolutely correct. And by the way, the point that I would make is that, is that many of the things that he has been, in quotes, criticized for uh, are things that many business leaders do. Now, so this is not just Donald Trump. I mean, you know, people say Trump is a narcissist. By the way, there's an extensive research literature that demonstrates the positive relationship between narcissism and getting hired, narcissism and getting promoted, narcissism and earning more, narcissism and staying in your job more. So let's learn that lesson. Let's learn the lesson about lying. I mean, you know, there's articles which I cite lying in everyday life. I mean, once again, you see CEOs making claims about a forecast for what their next quarter's earnings are going to be, statements about the quality of their products, statements about how many cars they're going to produce. If you're Elon Musk, all kinds of statements that they make, uh, that, that, that CEOs make, that have sometimes some resemblance in, re in reality, but sometimes are exaggerated again. So I think the behaviors that have shocked people about Trump in part because he's carried to them uh, to an extreme are, are behaviors that you can see in many, 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 many successful uh, CEOs, ranging from the confidence, ranging from the never apologizing. There's research literature on apology, which shows that it's a relatively weak thing to do. I mean, so, so many of these things extend well beyond politics, where you can see from the recent primaries uh, how many people have, in fact, learned the lessons of Donald Trump. Now, look, the difference between a business school and an economics department is that in the economics department, you can spend your whole career just describing the world and, and then you're done. But in, in business schools, you know, our students want them to give them advice. I, I find like whenever I interview a business professor and I say, yeah, you've written this, you know, wonderful self-help book, they, they get a little uh, upset because they say, well, oh, no, no, I don't, I don't do self-help books. You know, that's Dr. Phil. And it's like, well, actually, you know, Every business school book is right, a self-help book and at some level, at least that's what, you know, people are going to turn it into a self-help book. And so I think a lot of people, when they read your work, they think, oh, Jeff is telling us to lie. He's telling us to cheat. He's telling us to get rid of our enemies, get rid of the crown princes who might take our jobs right? Push people under the, under the bus. And so I, I know you've had to respond to this. And for someone who is also simultaneously in the conscious capitalism movement and somebody who's a, a proponent of workplaces that, that don't kill us, how do you deal with those responses? I mean, I, I actually teach, I teach game theory and I teach strategy. And when I'm standing up in front of the classroom and I use phrases like kill the baby in the crib. And then after class, they discover that I'm actually kind of a, a nice guy. Like they're a little shocked, right? How do you respond to that? I mean, you're, are, you're not telling people to, 
discard all morality, to discard all ethics in the pursuit of power? Well, I, you know, first of all, I'm not a moral philosopher or ethicist. And so therefore I try to only teach what I know. And I think the, you know, so I opened this book because I've heard this a lot with a quote, which actually is, was attributed to me. I don't remember saying it, but I could have, could have said it. And it's, it's a fine quote that if you want power to be used for good, more good people have to have power. And if you want more good people to have power, those good people have to understand the rules of the game. If, we, if we're going to play soccer, we need to understand the rules of soccer. We need to understand that a Cristiano Ronaldo is an expert actor. That if you touch him on the field, he's going to roll over and try and try to draw a penalty. And we can be like the U.S. men's soccer team and say that's bad sportsmanship. Or we can say that's what Cristiano Ronaldo has developed the skill at doing. And if we're going to beat him, we need to beat him at his own game. And I think you cannot go into battle against whoever this is, whether it's Trump or whether it's a competitive company or whatever, without understanding what they're doing and why it's working. So you teach business strategy, and I'm sure as part of teaching business strategy, you teach people how to diagnose the strategy of their competitors. Because if I'm going to be successful against a competitor, I don't necessarily have to imitate their strategy, but I damn sure need to understand what it is and why it's working. And so I would say the same thing about this. You don't necessarily have to lie. Do whatever the hell you want to do. But you need to understand why in the world lying is often not sanctioned, why lying is more frequent than you think it is, why you need, you need to understand the rules. And then understanding those rules, you get to decide what you're willing to do and, and how you want to play the game. But you need to begin with an understanding of the landscape in which you're operating. And you, because if you don't understand that, you're going to be, which is, I think, the worst thing that happens, you're going to be caught by surprise. You're going to be thrown out. You're going to lose your job. You're going to lose out to competition, and you won't understand why. And so my first objective is to have people understand, to use a phrase that you're very familiar to, the game they're in and the rules of that game. You've already referred to game theory. I mean, you don't have to defect in prisoners' dilemmas, but you need to understand the payoff structure and you need to understand the probabilities. This is all probabilities. And so you need to understand this is not physics. Not everybody's going to behave the same. This is a probabilistic world in which we live. But you need to understand the forces that are arrayed against you and the forces that you can muster. And then you get to decide. But without that level of knowledge, you're, I believe you're doomed. And so my job as an educator, my job in Seven Rules of Power is to describe to the best of my ability not only what is going on, but why. The underlying principles that help us understand and predict behavior. Right. But at some level, the rules of the game are made by people. And as a leader, you, you can, in some ways, sculpt and craft the rules of the game of the organization in which you operate. Right. So. You know, you can create an organization. But, but if you're going to do that, you have to be in a position of leverage. I cannot sculpt the rules of the game unless I'm in a position of power in the first place. So one of the things that org design, you talk a lot about why would we expect people to behave a certain way if they're not rewarded for it, right? Why would we expect people to behave a certain way if we've designed a system where behaving that way is, is detrimental to their career advancement? So how can we 
as when we achieve some level of leadership, how can we design the rules of the organization that we have some control over so as to reduce the detrimental behavior? I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, Microsoft had, they had stack rankings and then they, they switched out of stack rankings to a different reward system with a different kind of performance evaluation. And I think that unlocked quite a bit of collaboration. It unlocked a lot of uh, innovation and so forth, right? So the degree to which you will be rewarded by engaging in bad behavior, the degree to which you will have some safety. I mean, if I, as a leader, I consciously go around trying to identify, for instance, who's productive, then I'm telling people, you know, you don't need to spend as much time selling me because I'm going to do my homework and find out so you can spend more time on your job. We don't teach that. We don't teach people how to match the culture that we're trying to create with the, the incentives, right? And you, you reference organizational theory and organizational design. And, and it seems like that whole conversation exists in one area of academia. And then th this idea of inspiring people and, and creating this culture exists in an entirely different domain within the, the business research. Well, actually, this is an interesting point that you make, because this brings us back to where we began, which is the connection between evidence and practice. You know, so, so the examples you use about stack ranking, there was never any very good evidence that stack ranking was worked, uh, but people did it because people imitated whatever. And in fact, what if people will replay several times your, the statement you just made, it really speaks to thinking hard about the principles that we want to implement in our organizations that produce the behavior that we want. And so if you actually want to find principles that will produce the behavior that we want in the organization, this draws you back directly to understanding the evidence of what works and how it works and why. And so that I think does a nice job is where we began of connecting evidence with all of this. So if, if you're gonna design an organization where behavior is X, you need to understand the principles that are gonna produce that behavior. And that requires you to be much more evidence-based and less based on hope and prayer and belief and myth and everything else. So it's a, it is, I think it takes us exactly back to where, you know, to that question, tying the two things together. Well, I think one of the problems with doing high quality empirical research is that, you know, a lot of the categories are pretty poorly defined, right? I remember I went to a, I went to a, a talk and, and organizational behavior where the, the conclusion was that if you had a, an assertive boss, you know, they were going to be effective, but if you had a bossy boss, they weren't effective. <laughs> And I was like, well, wait, what, what are the behaviors associated with assertive? And they turned out to be the exact same behaviors that were associated with bossy. So there's no way ex ante to know <laughs> whether someone was engaging in bossy or assertive behaviors, right? I mean, that's not really going to be useful research. It's going to be a nice story, but it's, it's not really going to be very helpful when you're rolling out new new behaviors, right? That's, that's exactly right. And also, I think the words that really drive me nuts are effectiveness or words about good or bad, which are very imprecise. I mean, there are, as you know, in the organization's literature, there are a number of outcomes. And first of all, there are outcomes at the individual level. Secondly, there are outcomes at the organizational level. You can be a successful individual in a poorly performing organization or an unsuccessful, you know, I mean, you know, all combinations are possible, but even within individual success, there are multiple dimensions of that. Happiness, health, 
promotions, salary. These things are not always perfectly correlated with each other at the organizational level, customer satisfaction, employee engagement, the financial returns. They are correlated, but the correlations are far from perfect. So we need, Gregory, I could not agree more with you. We need way, way, way more precision in our language as opposed to using kind of more, much more aggregated concepts that, you know, that, that cover a multitude of dimensions. I, th I think that's completely correct. Now, you, you mentioned kind of employee feedback and trying to tap into or measure employee sentiment. And you, you say that while inaccurate, it's certainly something worth doing, but you're a little bit more skeptical about kind of student evaluations, right? And the way I think about it is like, you know, you don't want to survey somebody when they're exiting the hospital. This is what hospitals do. Like right when you're leaving, they're like, how was your stay? Right? It's like, oh, my stay was great. But, you know, a year later, I'm, I'm a fentanyl addict, right? So, like, what's wrong with student evaluation? Is it because we, students don't want to, or is it that they don't want to hear, right, useful insight? Or is it that they simply don't have the capacity to recognize it because they're not kind of putting it into practice and, and immediately and, and, and figuring out whether it's useful? Well, there's now been a, a number of studies of the relationship between student evaluations of instructors and objective measures of learning, and the correlation is zero. So it strikes me that if, you know, so what is your objective? If your objective is to entertain, by the way, this is true in the leadership literature and the leadership education world as well, where many people evaluate speakers on whether or not they get applause at the end and what, how people fill out what's called happy sheets, which I think is ridiculous. Because at the end of the day, the question isn't, did I put you in a good mood? I mean, we're not going to like some Las Vegas show to have entertainment. The question I would ask, which some companies like USAA does ask, is whether or not at the end of the educational process, if you go back six months later and talk to the person's boss, are they more effective? They're not that they did not that they enjoy the show, but did anything change as a consequence of their being exposed to that training and learning? So there is no relationship between um, evaluation and objective measures of learning. That's been demonstrated a number of times. And your thing about the hospital is, of course, interesting because it is true that if you want to get a high rating as a doctor, you do two things, both of which are bad. You overprescribe pain meds. And you also overprescribe antibiotics. So Gregory comes to me with a virus, which is essentially seldom treatable by antibiotics. But, you know, if I send you away and say, Greg, you're going to get better on your own, you're going to be upset. And so instead I write, I overprescribe antibiotics, and then we build all these antibiotic-resistant germs. So, you know, I mean, yes, there is an issue in which, and this goes back, by the way, to evidence-based management, where you need to think clearly about what is the behavior that you're actually rewarding, not the behavior you think you're rewarding. You know, I still remember the story from my friend Bob Beck when he was the um, head of HR for the Bank of America and worked for Dick Clawson. And this is in the early 80s. And Clawson said to him, why are we making so many bad loans in Latin America. He said, because you're evaluating the loan brokers on how many loans they make, not whether or not they're making loans that will ever be paid back. And this was a lesson that was completely forgotten and then repeated in 2008 and 2009, where once again, loan brokers were making mortgage loans and getting rewarded for the volume of loans they made rather than for the quality of the loans they made. So we 
have trouble oftentimes in our reward systems because we get what we reward, but oftentimes we don't actually want what we get. Now, look, in Leadership BS, right, you start off with with a description of the current state of management. And this was a couple of years back, but I don't think that much has changed. And you say that, look, most people in most organizations are disappointed with their leadership. And there's two reasons for this, right? Some are ineffective, right? And and some are toxic. And these are different things because the toxic folks may be effective, but it seems like we have to choose between one or the other. We either get the toxic or the ineffective. And if we're super unlucky, then we get toxic and ineffective, right? So why is this? And I, I think in, in part, right, part of your indictment is that the touchy-feely, so to speak. And, and of course, I, don't, I know that you're not trying to diminish in any way the, your colleagues at Stanford who ha- offer a you know, very popular course in touchy-feely. But this idea that the touchy-feely approach to management is, is essentially saying, okay, if you're not going to be toxic, then you've got to embrace these other methods, which render you ineffective. And so how do we escape that trade-off? Well, you know, so you actually have answered your own question and a lot of the questions you've already asked. This is around, I mean, if we've learned anything from the quality movement, we've learned a lot, you get what you measure. And so essentially the problem that you, I think, have completely correctly identified is a problem of measurement, that we don't know what we want, that we undermeasure, that we measure the wrong things with the wrong time scale. And at the end, we get, the, we, we get a mess. And so if you had people like you with good mental discipline and a precise way of thinking that said, okay, I'm running this organization, what do I want? How important is it, employee well-being? And how would I measure employee well-being, both physical and behavioral? How important is customer satisfaction or customer loyalty? And what is the best way to measure that? Is it really that promoter score or are there more accurate ways? If, in other words, if we paid more attention to measurement and to measurement along all the things that we're trying to accomplish and to then look at the relationship among the measures and to see, are there trade-offs? Are there complementarities? At the end of that much more disciplined, evidence-based, pardon the expression, process, I think we would be in much better position to answer in a specific organization, the question you pose, because I would then know what is the relationship between employee well-being and how that's measured along a variety of dimensions and each of the other dimensions and how is that measured? What is the relationship between that and customer? And what is that the relationship between all of this and financial success and over what period of time? And then you would have as very much as doctors have with their lab results, I mean, they understand how to, how to manage this system because they actually have measures of how the system is functioning. And many organizations are measurement light and they are analytics light and they're rigorous thinking light. And I think this is really a call for a, a new type of scientific management, right? I mean, I think we know when we're looking at folks on the factory floor, we have a pretty good way of monitoring and measuring their productivity and so forth. And that's been extended to things like call centers and even to kind of software engineers and so forth. But management seems to be the final frontier of, of kind of scientific management. Managers need to kind of turn that lens on themselves and, and get a better handle on what works and, and what doesn't work. 
So one last question, because I, I, you know, I also am interested in philosophy and ethics and so forth. And ethics is all about, you know, how do you live your life? And we spend a lot of time talking about character and people are interested in who they want to be. And when you look at, you tell that story of flopping, right? And I think that the English and the American soccer players, at the end of the day, they don't want to look in the mirror and say, you know, I'm, I'm a flopper. <laughs> so, I mean, does that need to be reframed or is it just like, okay, as long as you understand the trade-offs here, and as long as you understand that virtue isn't free and that virtue comes at a price, and then like any good economist, as long as you understand the frontier and as long as you're on the frontier. So in other words, there's no virtue you could acquire out there for free and there's no effectiveness that you could acquire for free. As long as you're on the frontier, you're not going to have anything to say about where you choose to be on that frontier. I think that is exactly correct. And I think your point is one that people really, 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 really avoid trying to, to, to confront the idea you can have it all. I can have a family and spend hours with my children and my career will not suffer, even though the evidence is quite clear that work hours is in fact related to salary. If work hours is in fact related to career success, you know, you cannot have it all. You cannot do whatever that you want and to have everything be all perfect. And so your comment about trade-offs is I think exactly right. And one of the things that I try to do in my teaching, and I think one of the things that, that people often try to do in their writing is to try to point out to people what is traded off against what. And this gets back to the point that we just made, that if we had more measurement, and better measurements, we would understand those trade-offs at a higher level of resolution or detail. And so people will be able to make those decisions even better. Well, Jeff, look, it's been great chatting with you. And look, I think everybody by now is hungry to take your course, right? Pass to power. But if you can't take his course, you should just check out his book, Seven Rules of Power. And that'll just get you started on the Jeff Pfeffer bibliography. After that, you can check out Leadership Yes, and don't forget, dying for a paycheck. And if you're really hardcore like me, you, you can dig into the old uh, hard facts and in spite of the title, fantastic book and the knowing doing gap. Thanks so much, Jeff, for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Gregory, for having me on your show. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.